Hello, I'm Kevin Barrett. You're listening to Truth Jihad Radio, the home of free thought and dissenting opinions. If you like this kind of free-for-all, please go to truthjihad.com and click on the subscribe at Substack button. Welcome to Truth Jihad Audio. I'm Kevin Barrett, talking with the folks who have the most to say from way outside the box of mainstream idiocy. And today, I've got uh, two of my heroes I've been following for quite some time. I finally got them on the show, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Jessica Rose. They're both uh, people with uh, very strong medical credentials who've questioned the COVID uh, party line and gotten some pushback for their pains. Dr. Peter McCullough is a cardiologist with a strong public health background and master's in public health from the University of Michigan. Jessica is a Canadian researcher who's got a bachelor's in applied math, a master's in immunology, a PhD in computational biology, and uh, on and on and on, even more than that. But we'll uh, just get going here. So, hey, welcome, uh, Peter and Jessica. How are you? Great. Good. Thanks for coming. Okay, well, it's an honor to have you. We'll start with Peter because uh, although both guests are having some internet issues, uh, <laughs> Peter's are worse. <laughs> so, uh, Peter, um, where where to start here? Uh, first, um, uh, well, quick quickly, maybe you could introduce yourself uh, and let us know how you ended up being somebody who's being both cheered and smeared for saying sensible things about COVID and the experimental injections. Uh, I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas, academic practice, spent about half my time seeing patients like yesterday and half my time uh, in uh, academic mode as an author and former editor and contributor. I'm a frequent news commentator now, never thought I would be in the limelight, but I was uh, very much prepared for it in terms of my training and background in analyzing data. Uh, both as a clinical trialist and, and an epidemiologist. Uh, I have been cheered. There's no doubt about it. I've testified in the U.S. Senate and been well-received across multiple news platforms. I've only been jeered, I think, in fact, I know, by people with no credentials and no credibility. I agree. So I, I and I, I think the jeers are about 1%, and I think the cheers are 99%. But if you can find somebody who's credible, who's ever said a discrediting statement, I'd be happy to see it. Well, well here's, here's a kind of humorous discrediting statement. According to Wikipedia, you're spreading misinformation about COVID because you uh, are not sure that people under 30 should be getting the experimental injections. Now, <laughs> I, I don't quite understand that. Well, let, let me just say Wikipedia has contributors who are anonymous. The most frequent contributor to my Wikipedia page is not me. I should actually be writing my own Wikipedia page. In fact, Wikipedia has locked me out. It's someone in Illinois named the Altman. So it's an anonymous, (laughs) uncredentialed person who's putting incorrect information on my Wikipedia page. So Wikipedia, in my view, since it's not a biographical or autobiographical page that's credentialed, or allows the individual to actually put correct information in, Wikipedia should be removed from the internet and clearly not viewed by anybody who's interested in the truth. I agree completely. I I had a five-year battle with Wikipedia myself, and it was maddening. They had libelous information up for five years that couldn't be taken down, sourced to an anonymous, uh, obscure blog uh, (laughs) lying about me. So yeah, it's it's completely insane. Well, uh, and the idea that questioning whether people under 30 uh, should be getting these COVID injections is also completely insane, isn't it? Or uh, I mean, where did they come up with that? Yeah, you know, I'm a doctor, so I decide. Not, not Wikipedia, but I decide. I have the medical authority to decide and help patients judge the risks and the benefits. The risks of the vaccines in people under 30 far outweigh any benefits that could be had, even from the very beginning against the wild type strain of which the vaccines were designed to block. Now with the Omicron strain across the age spectrum, the risks which are still there outweigh any theoretical benefits. And again, I'm the doctor. I have the authority to decide and make that judgment, not anonymous Wikipedia people. Well, I'm not a doctor, but that's sure how it looked to me too. I just can't imagine why anybody would be telling young people to have got, even back in in the bad old days of Delta, 
Uh, but even then, it, the numbers First didn't make any sense, sense to me either. Uh, so, uh, Peter, uh, where did this COVID thing come from? Um, it looks like a bioweapon, and there are various uh, theories about that. Uh, to not my mind, uh, even just the presumption that that's a possibility means we need to shut down biological weapons research. Maybe you can tell us your thoughts about uh, biological weaponry and, and the possible link with COVID. That's beyond my range as a medical doctor. I've been treating patients who are falling sick with the virus or after receiving the vaccine. But I do would refer you and the listeners to Peter Bregan, COVID-19, the global predators. We are the prey. It's about a thousand references in it. I wrote one of the uh, introductions. It's probably the best synthesis of where the virus came from, who are the collaborators, and what are the potential motivations. Thank you for that reference. I will check that out. Uh, so uh, regarding the vaccines, um, it seems that there's a huge uh, accumulation of danger signals suggesting that they are neither say, well, we know they're not very effective in terms of promoting herd immunity, but we also are learning that there are a lot of reasons to think that they're unsafe. What are the most important ones in your view? We always consider safety first before efficacy. So even if the vaccines were perfect against COVID, if they were unsafe, we still wouldn't use them. So we always, we would never have somebody take an injection and be harmed. That's completely unacceptable. We know now from the released court-ordered Pfizer documents, Pfizer had 1,223 deaths reported to them within 90 days of release of their product. That is completely unacceptable. They should have pulled the product off the market at 50 deaths or before. And by continuing to have the product on the market, Pfizer basically defrauded the government as providing a safe and effective product. And chances are, if we get the Moderna and Johnson and Johnson documents, we'll find the same thing. Dr. Rose is with us, and she's an expert on the vaccine adverse event reporting system. That shows alarming signals, as does a yellow card and the EU Udris system. There's also uh, the V-Safe and Vigisafe systems. All of them show alarming, unacceptable, catastrophic deaths that occur a few days after receiving the vaccine, and then an array of non-fatal syndromes, some of them causing permanent injury, neurologic, cardiovascular, immunologic, and hematologic. And, and Dr. Rose, uh, what, what, uh, what do you think are the worst of these signals? Oh, um, well, that depends on your point of view. But uh, I mean, most people would think that death is the worst. Uh, we, we're, we're at over 30,000 deaths in the domestic data set in VAERS right now. Uh, and as Peter said, th this is mirrored in all of the adverse event data collection systems that are somewhat functioning right now around the world. Um, I would say that uh, personally, the neurological adverse event reports are one of the worst because these can be debilitating. There's actually a category in VAERS called uh, disability. And the, the numbers of disabled uh, of, of people reporting disabilities in the context of these injections. And now we're only talking about the, uh, the Pfizer, the Moderna, and the Janssen products in the United States. So this is just three products. Um, it's, it's, it's just off the charts. It's not even comparable to anything we've seen historically. Uh, and again, as Peter said, I mean, at 50 deaths, the product should have been pulled. This should have been pulled in January last year. It's, it's, it's not rational. It's not logical. It doesn't make any sense why this is continuing to this day. And not only, not only continuing, but being pushed and promoted. More shots, more, more uh, versions of shots against more versions of this virus. It's insanity. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, uh, the VAERS data has been questioned in that, uh, as Matthew Crawford said when he was on the show a few weeks ago, that the, theoretically every death that occurs within X time of vaccination ought to be reported to VAERS, which would be a very, very large number, even if the vaccine weren't killing anybody. So how, how do you think we should be interpreting the VAERS data? We should interpret it as being valid for what's there, but being a grossly underreported set of data. So uh, initially, uh, events are reported, they get a temporary VAERS number, then the CDC vets it, 
And then when it's found to be valid, it gets a permanent VARES number. The data Dr. Rose gave you are the permanent VARES number. I've done numerous VARES submissions. And I can tell you uh, there are queries and calls from the CDC. If the lot number isn't correct or they want to know the MRI or the blood test, the CDC verifies it. So these numbers up in the database are legitimate and real. Uh, the concern is that they're a gross underreport. A paper by Pantazatos and Seligman in the ResearchGate preprint server system using census data and vaccine administration data as an ecological analysis suggests the upper bound of the confidence interval for the number of lives lost after the vaccine through, August, through December of 2021 could be as high as 187,000 Americans. It's catastrophic, but it's cohesive with what we're hearing from the life insurance systems, where all the life insurance systems are reporting in now record numbers of deaths in people working age. That's right. Uh, and uh, Dr. Jessica Rose, uh, the, you recently wrote a post about the deaths among millennials. Uh, what's, uh, what does the data show about that? So yeah, there, there's uh, there's this surge of um, of deaths in millennials, which are 25 to 44 year olds. These are young people. Um, 84 uh, percent surplus of deaths in the fall of 2021, which is completely unexplained. Nobody knows why. Uh, it's according to what I found, it's not due to drug overdoses and suicides and and all of these these other ways of, uh, or these, these ways of dying that yes, they're on the grow, but they only comprise a certain percentage of this, this overgrowth of death. So something caused this surplus, uh, of death in young people. It's outrageous that this isn't like headline news and, uh, you know, extra, extra read all about it. Like back in the day, it's, it's not right that nobody is giving a clear answer as to what killed these people. It's, it's, it's factual. It's confirmed in many different ways. So, yeah. And, and it's, yeah, again, I, it's inexplicable. There are so many answers that we need uh, and that we're not getting. And and Dr. McCullough, what about the reports of athletes uh, dropping from cardiac problems, sometimes dead and sometimes not. Uh, are those also uh, concerning? Uh, have you looked at the statistical analysis of those? What should we think of those? Roughly 700 athletes, be Europe, mainly European, mainly soccer and rugby and other forms of football, 700 have had cardiac arrest during competition or practice. About half of them have been successfully resuscitated. Half, sadly, have died. These are record numbers. Uh, not a single case has there been a reporting that they took the vaccine, had myocarditis and died? Not a single case. In fact, there's almost little or nothing said about each one of these deaths. It's almost like a mystery. We do know globally these leagues have enforced. Oh, looks like we may have lost Dr. Peter McCullough as he predicted. Uh, Dr. Jessica Rose, are you still there? I am, yes. Okay, looks like uh, we may have lost Peter. Oop, there he come, goes. Come in, Peter. Now he's uh, gone. He's gone. Okay. Uh, well, uh, maybe you can uh, pick up from there about the uh, the mysterious deaths of athletes. Yeah, sure. And and uh, I'll segue into uh, uh, the the conversation about causation because there's there's a huge pushback from from all sides as to the, you know the the debate of are these injections causing all of these adverse events without a reasonable doubt to me, they are. And there's a way to, to verify this uh, using something called the Bradford Hill criteria, which is a, you know, long since used set of criteria that you can use to assess a a causal effect uh, in epidemiological or biological data. And one of the ways that you can do that. Uh, one of one of the criteria is called specificity. So that applies to our healthy young athletes and also our young children who are suffering these massive, massively rare cardiac events and myocarditis, for example. If you take a young person and you uh, you ask yourself the question, okay, is it common 
for a young person to have a, a heart attack? Is it common for a 15-year-old boy, for example, to have myocarditis? Is it common for a healthy young athlete at the peak of their, their career to just drop dead from a cardiac event? So you look in specific populations where you would never expect just, you know, uh, logically or statistically for these things to occur. And we're finding these things at much higher rates than above background in both of these specific populations. So, um, yeah. And again, once again, we have not seen this before with a, a product that's being peddled to such a large proportion of the human population. Um, there's just no, there, there's no explaining this. It's exactly what Peter said. Even if these products are 100% efficacious, which they are not, they're negatively efficacious right now, which means that they're causing harm to your immune system, as a matter of fact, it doesn't matter. If the product isn't safe, if it's even killing 50 people, it needs to be removed from use. This is the job of our regu regulatory bodies like the FDA. So it's interesting. The, the media is telling us that, well, whatever problems there might be with the vaccines, that they're actually doing a lot more good than harm. You know, they're saving yeah. you from the evils of COVID, you know, in a, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it, so but, but you, what you and, and Dr. McCullough say is that basically uh, we have to have a do no harm uh, kind of approach. Precisely. Right. And, and then, but the, the other side of that, and of course, you know, people with kind of the military approach to things, you know, military people are very much uh, acculturated to sacrificing a certain number of their troops in order to gain a strategic advantage, win the war and save more of their troops. And it uh, does make you wonder whether somebody high up in these agencies might be thinking along those lines. That's the implication of the way the media talks about it. The implication would be that, well, if we, if we kill a, a hundred people or even a hundred thousand and we save, you know, half a million or a million, then we've done uh, a net good. So there's a philosophical issue there. And, and maybe you could uh, concisely explain the, the do no harm position. Well, I'm not a medical doctor, but uh, if I was, I would abide by my oath to do no harm, which you have to take if you become a medical doctor. Um, one of the parts of doing no harm, if you're a medical doctor and you treat patients, is to ensure that not only you are up to date on what's going on in, uh, in the pharmaceutical world, in the vaccine world, in the peer-reviewed literature world, in all the studies that you, you probably should be reading world, you have to convey that information to your patient as part of informed consent, especially when you're talking about a brand new experimental product that's being mandated in many cases, um, in many places in the world. So it's this duty of medical doctors um, to, to do no harm is, is seemingly being waived by many people. And I'm not sure why that is. Um, I mean, maybe they don't think there is harm because they're simply just not up to date on the data. I would dare say that that's the reason why, but I don't think that's an excuse. I think it's, it's, it's absolutely your duty as a physician with patients to be up to date. And the data is very clear on both the efficacy and the safety of these products. It's really, really clear. The pharmacovigilance tools that we use to assess safety signals like VAERS are screaming red flags in just about every adverse event type you can imagine. There are over 10,000 types of adverse events reported to VAERS right now in the context of these products. So it's not just the, the absolute numbers of the reports, which like Peter said, are severely underreported, it's the number of types. If you pick any system, any tissue, any tissue system, any cell type in the human body, somehow these products are affecting them in some populations of people. And that's a, one of the points I've been pushing. 
this is this is happening. They can deny it all they want, but it is happening. And the annoying part for me as a scientist is that the work that needs to be done now is to figure out who this is happening to and why precisely. And because they're denying the existence of the problem itself, those studies aren't being done. Well, I've had Meryl Nass on this show, and she points out that the the VAERS data, of course, is extremely concerning, but it's hard to know what to make of it, given that, um, as Matthew Crawford said, that theoretically, everybody who has any problem after a vaccine uh, up to who knows, you know, two weeks or a month, or there isn't even a time frame really. There's no official time frame. So any medical problem of any kind whatsoever after getting a vaccine, theoretically, you know, you could die 50 years after the vaccine from old age. And theoretically, there's no reason not to report that to theirs. So get, given that there's such loose reporting criteria, uh, it's, it's really hard. It, it, it's easy for the establishment to tell us that, oh, it's all coincidence. All of these different kinds of problems are just problems that people would have had anyway. And it's just a coincidence that they happen to have them within X time frame, whatever that time frame may be from the vaccines. So anyway, Meryl Nass points out that, yeah, she, she thinks that actually the VAERS data is probably underreported, but we can't prove that. But she says that the government is holding really good data, that they've paid a lot of taxpayers' money for really good data, and they've kept it under lock and key, which is both uh, outrageous uh, in terms of swindling the taxpayers who paid for all that data, but also um, very suspicious. Uh, is what, what, What's your take on, on all of that um, data that's not being released? Yeah, it's shameful because it does exist. They have more uh, data, like demographic data, than we know about and you know a we don't know about it and therefore b we don't know what it what it's telling us or what it would if we had access and you know this is the same story that we're we're being peddled from from the manufacturers as you know as you're probably well aware um you know pfizer wanted to hide their their safety and efficacy data for for 75 years and uh, they had I, they've been ordered by the court now, thanks to some brave uh, lawyers, to release this data over the next. I guess we have seven months left now. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of pages of data per month, and they were fighting and fighting and saying, "Well, we'll do this, but we'll we'll redact some of it," and and blah blah blah. And it's like, no, 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 no. You know, the public has a right to know what your studies showed in the clinical trials. Um, they've already been injected with it. So, you know, that's an important thing for us to know. Um, it's just appalling. I mean, you, you have to ask yourself, what would be the motivation of anybody uh, to hide safety data? And I, like I've said before, the only reason you would ever want to hide safety data is if you really don't want people to know that it's revealing that your product isn't safe. That would be the only reason to hide it. And then you have to start getting appalled and realize that these, these, these agencies and these uh, organizations and establishments are, they're, they're really not peddling products that are safe for human so-called consumption. They're not. Um, yeah, it's, again, you know, it's just, it's all a part of this, this whole story that's been one big lie, in my opinion. None of it adds up. None of it makes sense. None of it is in the interest of public health, obviously. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's not over. That's, that's one of the most disturbing things to me. Well, Dr. Uh, Peter McCullough did, he said, uh, that according to one estimate, I forget what the precise number was. I think he says it was 160,000 uh, possible uh, vaccine deaths in the U.S. alone. I've spoken with others. I'm going to have Steve Kirsch on the show in a couple of days, and he's come up with estimates in that ballpark or possibly even somewhat higher. Uh, have you tried to crunch numbers and examine the various you know, approaches and 
there a number of people have used different signals to argue for different numbers of deaths. And and the U.S. deaths, again, a lot of people have managed to put them in the six figures, usually the the low six figures. Uh, Have you uh, crunched those numbers or looked at some of those estimates? Yeah, I I actually have a publication. Um, It was the second uh, publication I did on VAERS data where um, it's actually an uh, assessment of the pharmacovigilance-ness of VAERS. And in this paper, I do estimate the underreporting factor using Pfizer's phase three clinical trial data that had been released at the time. That's right. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so my, my underreporting factor uh, was a conservative estimate at 31, which means that you would need to multiply most of the adverse events by, you know, a factor of 31, probably not death even though this was uh, calculated using severe adverse event data for which death is, um, I would say that the underreporting factor for death is lower because, you know, it's death more often reported, I would say. But in VAERS currently, in the domestic data set in the context of the COVID-19 products alone, we have over 30,000 deaths reported. So if we, if we use a an underreporting factor of say, I don't know, let, let, let's go half of, let's just go 15, which is half of my, the lowest estimate that's been um, calculated. We're, we're at about half a million deaths. So the, the, the number is, we don't even need to account for the underreporting factor here when, when talking about the appallingness of, of what we're seeing. The numbers in VAERS right now, just the absolute numbers with without, like I said, calculating in the underreporting factor are off the charts when you compare them to the last 30 years of data. There's no comparison here. It's like when I describe what the bar graph looks like, if like if you tally up all of the adverse event reports for all the vaccines combined for the last 30 years, because VAERS um, has been on the go for 30 years you get about 39,000 reports per year. This is for all the vaccines combined. I think there's like up to, almost up to 100 now, different kinds. So if you compare that to just the adverse event reports in the context of COVID-19 for 2021, you, you, you're, we're over a million. I mean, it's, it's just insane that anyone would think that nothing is going on here and that it's just a coincidence and that, you know, it looks like a bunch of bungalows over the last 30 years compared to this massive skyscraper. That's what the bar graph looks like. And wow. it's the same, it's the same story for any standalone adverse event that you pick. You can pick anything. You can pick death. You can pick myocarditis, disability, uh, anything you want. And it's, it looks like that. Mm-hmm. Have, have there been attempts to uh, any remotely credible or thoughtful attempts to argue back from the other side. I've been, no. been looking for them. Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Steve, Steve Kirsch is very good uh, at calling people and getting people's attention. And he's a, he's a doer. He is very active. Um, and he, he's been trying for, I'd, I'd say it's going on a year now sending emails to like the top, you know, like Walensky and Woodcock and all these people and saying, Hey, how about letting us know what the underreporting factor is? If, uh, if you're saying that ours is wrong, how about letting us know, uh, how come there's no causality assessment being done here? How about letting us know, um, like any, any of the answers to our questions, what's the cutoff number for the number of deaths, you know, to, to deem the product unsafe, Anything. How many deaths are reported to VAERS right now? They can't even answer that, my friend. There's, oh. a, there's a video of Walensky, not, both Walensky and Fauci, not being able to answer the simplest of questions. She's the director of the CDC. This is the organization that owns this data set. She could not answer a simple question. How many reports of death are in VAERS right now? Wow. That's, that's crazy. I, I know, Dr. Hey. Dr. McCullough has compared this uh, apparent, uh, you know, the, the inefficacy and danger of the vaccines to the apparent efficacy of treatments. Uh, have you done work on the treatment uh, issue? 
You mean like ivermectin? Yeah, ivermectin and, and hydroxychloroquine, um, I guess, are the two big ones. Yeah, I, I've uh, I've talked about them in my presentations uh, to various people, just in the context of, hey, there, there's another solution. But um, that's the, I piggyback off of the FLCCC and Pierre Corey, like... Um, I'm not really analyzing uh, data per se in with regard to the uh, the early treatment. So I know that uh, there are many, many, many studies showing efficacy of these products. And I also know that ivermectin is um, it's an antiparasitic drug that's super, super cheap. That's been on the go for decades uh, been used uh, without any maleffects, even in pregnant women. Um, and has, in fact, uh, been associated with a Nobel Prize. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an FDA-approved drug that's been on the go forever. Uh, you know, repurposed drugs are, are used all the time. Um, we, we use them uh, in an off-label way, which means that you, you've, you, you use it for a different ailment or disease, for example, with, with success. This is not a new thing, but all of a sudden... Very, very strangely, I mean, Pierre Corey is the one to talk about this with. There's, a, there's these these poor uh, <laughs> these poor drugs <laughs> are being demonized. I mean, it's just bizarro world. If people understood how strange that was, I think that they would ask a lot more questions. It's very strange to us, like how 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 nonsensical it all is. Well, I, I've had this argument with my brother who is, he's uh, an MD, uh, PhD, who has run lots of uh, studies, usually uh, randomized controlled trials. And so mm-hmm. he says that, well, first he said, oh, there's no evidence that ivermectin works uh, or no good evidence. And so I sent him, I sent him to the, that website that has the huge list of studies, the vast majority of which do show. Yeah, the FCCC, yeah. Right. And he said, oh, wow, I, I never saw that. So, okay, well, there is some evidence. He said, however, the good ones, the good randomized controlled trials don't show efficacy. Uh, so still, you know, he's not convinced. So how, how do you respond to that? I, I respond to that like this. I trust the doctors on the ground who are having success treating COVID patients, okay? Paul Merrick and uh, and Pierre Corey and, and uh, you know, um, Fareed and Tyson, they've they've treated tens of thousands of patients with, with these things. And you know how they did that? Do you know what the context was? We had an emergency situation. We had this potentially deadly virus. And so if you're an emergency room doctor, if you're an ICU doctor, people need to try and get into the head of the people who are on the, um, on the front of the line, as, as we've been calling it. They had to come up with a way to prevent their patients from dying or getting to the hospital. And so I imagine there was a lot of trial and error. There was a lot of critical thinking. There was a lot of I'm going to draw upon my decades of experience as a physician, a lot of amazing uh, independent assessment. And they came up with these protocols from going through these processes. So that's what I would trust. If I was, you know, um, if I had to make a decision for myself or someone that I love who is struggling to breathe, I'm like, take them to those people and let them do what they're going to do, because I trust them. They've been on the ground, boots to the ground, treated the patients. Nobody's being hospitalized if they go to these people. So and the other side of that is it ain't going to hurt them. It's a completely harmless drug, this ivermectin. It has an incredibly like impressive safety profile. So there's no harm. That's the other point. I don't get like why it's being demonized. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. So that, that's what I would say. <laughs> All right. I, I also, I'm uh, skeptical about these randomized controlled trials, given that the most celebrated one that supposedly proved that ivermectin didn't work, it turns out that if you actually uh, look at their numbers, as Merrill Nass pointed out on my show a couple of weeks ago, it turns out that there were, uh, it was conducted in Brazil uh, among poor people. 
who apparently a lot of them probably signed up because it was a free source of ivermectin, which they take anyway, prophylactically. And so anyway, they, they had divided into two groups, supposedly double-blinded. However, it so happened that this huge number, I think it was like 60% or something of the people in the control group that were getting the placebo uh, didn't comply with with the uh, protocols of the trial somehow so it, it it came to the attention of the experiments that they hadn't that these people hadn't complied like 60% of the control group didn't comply and uh, a vastly small version hardly any of the ivermectin group didn't comply so how can that be double blinded some somebody mm-hmm. knew you know which which group was which and Merrill thinks probably the the you know poor people who signed up for free ivermectin they tasted their sugar pill oh it's sugar it's not ivermectin and they went out and bought ivermectin anyway so it's and yet this has been touted as the best rct proving ivermectin doesn't work if that's the best i would hate to see the worst yeah no real world experience is the best thank you very much you know they can have their randomized control trials you know i it's not that i'm saying that they're not great when we have time and when we're, when they're done properly. But, you know, uh, boots to the ground, real life is more valuable. And it's especially valuable when you're considering the fact that these people are still telling us that we're in an emergency situation, which we are not. But assuming that we had been, you know, in the past, in the last year or so, um, you know, the best solution is to uh, you know, all hands on deck, man. Let's try everything and see what works. Seriously, that's they didn't take their time rolling these injections into people's arms, did they? They skipped all the safety trial. They, they, they did shot the shoddiest clinical trials in the world. These, you know, vaccines are supposed to take five to 15 years to go from conception to arm. These they have to take that long in order to ensure that the products are safe and effective. And the, I mean, we raced through this in a year and a half, two years, the whole thing, the whole shooting match. And these are not conventional vaccines, which makes what I just said very frightening. And most people don't realize that. This is a new platform. It's, it's a new delivery system, the lipid nanoparticle tech, and it's a new concept. This is modified RNA, which is injected into your body and it it provides the template for your host cell cells to develop or to translate these modified RNAs, whatever they are, into protein. And these are very stable modified mRNAs, as we're seeing in peer-reviewed literature right now. Up to 60 days we found this crap in the germinal centers of lymph nodes. Which is another thing. Mm. Yeah. What, what about the evidence that there is uh, uptake uh, into the the DNA that it actually is altering DNA? For a long time, that was totally being you know debunked by the so-called fact checkers. But then apparently, some studies came in showing that well, actually, it looks like there is some some uptake. Uh, what, what do we make of that? Yeah. So there's there's a new study um, which is not in the preprint servers. It's peer reviewed. It is published that shows definitively i've been i've been up and down this paper a few times and they did really good work really good controls and it shows definitively that reverse transcription occurs which means that wasn't meant to happen uh it wasn't meant to be possible for this rna to go back to dna and the problem with that is we don't know for sure yet we have strong evidence that it can happen with sars that this DNA can be incorporated into our genome. But that, that's precisely the problem. We were, t- we were actually told that this was an impossibility, that it could reverse transcribe. We were told there is zero possible. We were mocked for even raising concerns that that might be a possibility that integration may occur. We, we have yet to prove that, but I dare say that paper is being written right now. Um, we were also told that these, uh, the, the product, uh, you know, whatever's in the needle was going to remain at the injection site and, and the, the, the local draining lymph node at, uh, close to the injection, injection site. And it's very, very clear from the recent Pfizer dump that it absolutely doesn't stay 
at the injection site. It biodistributes into places where it should never go because we have no idea what the physiological effects are going to be. The ovaries, the testes, the brain, the adrenal glands, uh, the, the liver, the spleen. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And so these are, we're talking about the lipid nanoparticles right now. So these guys are comprised of four different fats, four different lipids, one of which is uh, called a cationic lipid, which is highly toxic to cells by nature. And so is the polyethylene glycol, the PEG, which is on the surface of the, um, the, uh, the lipid nanoparticle. So these guys are heavily biodistributed. They go everywhere. They slip into cells and they deliver their payload, which is this modified RNA. So we have to assume that these, this, uh, the host cells are going to start producing the proteins uh, that are the byproduct of this modified RNA, mRNA, whatever it is. And so we're going to get massive amounts of these foreign proteins being produced in locations where it should never occur. And we have no idea what the effect of that would be. All we know is that we see a lot of leaves rustling in the wind in the, in the, in the um, world of adverse event reports. So you, everybody's heard their mother, their sister, their daughter, their friend, somebody they know has had some kind of uh, menstrual dis- dysregularity. If, if they've either had the injections or interestingly enough, uh, been in proximity to someone who has, um, we're wow. seeing, yeah, we're seeing uh, fertility issues in the form of miscarriages, uh, spontaneous abortions, stillbirths, um, yeah, we're seeing uh, enormous effects uh, uh, in, in, in terms of the adverse event reports now. Um, when you compare them to, to historic, like the past 30 years, it's just not, it's not the same story at all. Something is going on here. So in my opinion, I mean, maybe they're not related, but we have to find out if they aren't or if they are. And the onus is on these people pushing this crap into us to prove that they're safe. It's not up to us to prove that they're not. We're doing this because we care, but it's not our duty. It's their duty to prove that they're safe. And if they're not even willing to acknowledge that, you know, this happened, even though you said it wouldn't, and we're seeing this effect, are, are, you know, shouldn't you acknowledge that first and investigate like the possibility that maybe we're seeing an increase in stillbirths because, you know, there, there's massive amounts of spike protein being produced in the ovaries? Like, shouldn't we find out? <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it, it does make you wonder. And, and of course, I don't think you have to be a professional conspiracy theorist uh, like me uh, to wonder whether the fact that we're seeing all of these signals relating to the reproductive system might possibly be related to the fact that we have Malthusians in high places. Bill Gates is one of the many uh wealthy oligarchs out there who uh, the whole Rockefeller family and all of their friends, of course, have been on this for a long time. But uh, and it's of course, it's not just these oligarchs who might think that the human population of Earth is way too high. It's unsustainable. It has to go down. Uh, what would be a kind and gentle way to do this? Well, if we could um, either, you know, release a disease or put out mandatory injections, uh, either one of which, or perhaps both, tended to reduce fertility, then uh, that might contribute towards helping solve this Malthusian problem. Uh, and, and to me, that's that's not a stupid conspiracy theory, just because, I mean, these oligarchs actually have a good reason to worry about the size of the population. One can project oneself into their shoes, imagine that one is a somewhat sociopathic oligarch uh, and used to solving problems in a pretty brute force way. I don't think it's unreasonable to wonder whether that could conceivably be related to this bizarre phenomenon of uh, putting out this experimental gene therapy that uh, is neither safe nor effective, but seems to do something to reproductive systems. I mean, call me crazy if you want, but I'm, I'm scratching my head about it. How about you? 
Yeah, I, uh, you know, I don't know if they're trying to do that. Uh, could very well be. I mean, there's not much that surprises me anymore after witnessing yeah, me too. <laughs> the last year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would say that they, they're not smart enough to have anticipated this effect. I, I think that this is just about being careless and it might just be a byproduct of that carelessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's what Ron Unz thinks too about his uh, data or <laughs> his evidence that seems to point to COVID emerging out of a presumably a U.S. biowar strike on Wuhan in uh, October of uh, of twenty what twenty nineteen. So the uh, uh, that that. Uh, and then, you know, the, the fact that it next emerged in Qom, Iran, uh, seemingly specifically targeting high up uh, people in Iran also adds to that thesis. But he so he argues that it likely would have been blowback. That is, these people aren't smart enough not to figure out that you shouldn't be uh, hitting ad- adversary economies with biological weapons because it might blow back and hurt your own economy even worse. Uh, so there are these, you know, there the, there's the conspiracy theory, and then there's the uh, theory that it's all a combination of coincidence and incompetence. And who knows? I mean, we'll pre- maybe we'll never know for sure. Uh, have you have you looked at this uh, the research about the possible biowar origins of COVID? No. Okay. Um, well, I urge you to. <laughs> yeah. No. I I kind of try and keep that to my like. Uh, you know the um, what 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 would I call that? I don't really have free time, but like I, I try and separate the um, the things that I'm doing related to this COVID nightmare from all the other stuff. I, I know it's very difficult to do that, um, and I do have opinions, but yeah, I don't know. I I, I think the bottom line is I want to save my energy and my bandwidth for the 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 really important stuff, which is, well, first of all, stopping things like this nightmare idiotic who treaty that they're. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know if people know about this, but uh, this is happening today and we had five days notice, uh, which the only reason I know about that is because of our, you know, inside groups who are, um, getting the information from the inside. They're, they're just planning on passing this insanity treaty, um, which basically means that all the countries that sign up, it's like 100 and something, something, I don't remember the exact number, uh, will, will give up their sovereignty. And no matter what the hell they decide to do, you're, you will have to abide. You will have to believe them, you know, that there's some kind of new emergency. They'll have these new measures They'll lock you up, they'll inject you, they'll do whatever the hell they want to you. And there's nothing we're going to be able to do about it because we won't have personal sovereignty. We won't have national sovereignty. We won't have anything if this goes ahead. So it's like, these are the kinds of things, and I know they're all related, I really do. Um, But focusing on the, the real ways that we can try and stop that kind of nonsense from happening, which is finding out about it, first of all, and using, you know, the methods that we've always used, which is the voices and the power of the people. So one of the things that I did, I mean, it's, it's stupid and it's small, but it's something. I mean, I, I used my, my Substack platform to, to just, you know, say, hey, you guys, you need to send a message to these people. Here's the website, go to this site, write your message, send it to them because we need to let them know that this is not okay with us. As as a global population, we don't want this shit. We don't want you to take over our sovereignty. We don't, we don't need you. We don't need big brother, we don't. So um, yeah, I went on a little rant there, but it's it's just, what a, what a nightmare we have coming toward us and most people have no idea you know it's hidden it's completely hidden yeah it's it's also it's partly hidden under the propaganda and uh, having been studying uh, this kind of uh, hysterical mode of fear propaganda since a little bit after 9/11 and then noticed that you know similar approach was taken with covid that is, you know, just hitting the whole population with this uh, wall-to-wall 
fear propaganda and then manipulating the population to do completely insane things in mass. Uh, and now, now it's, it's odd that just as the pushback was starting to peak with Canadian truckers and then American truckers following Canadian truckers and larger rallies and more and more awareness and the you know, vaccines seem to hit a brick wall. And then suddenly overnight, you know, the pandemic is forgotten, uh, taking wind out of the sails of the pushback movement. And suddenly we're all supposed to fear and hate Russia. And yeah. and once again, the population seems to actually have been herded to so that now about three quarters of the people do fear and hate Russia, just as the same three quarters of the people feared COVID and uh, reacted to 9-11 in, in the way that the controlled demolition people wanted them to. So uh, it, it sure seems that the, the public relations mind control machinery is trying to stay one step ahead of us. So do you have any ideas how we can try to get a step ahead of them? Yeah, stop listening to their garbage. And I, I don't know how to how to do that, because I mean, I, I can't even get fa- my family members, you know, not that I've seen them for like a, a decade, but <laughs> I couldn't even get them to turn off the TV. It's like, no, no, it's a part of our daily schedule. And, you know, it gives people a feeling of weird safety and warmth. But it's like, dudes, you got to find another way to get safe and warm because that ain't it. <laughs> Safety and stupidity and safety in numbers. Yeah, (laughs) It's inexplicable to me. It's like, no, 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 no. You, you have to turn off the television. You have to get rid of your stupid phone. You know, maybe that's a little bit too much to ask for most people, but I mean, these are the ways out of this. I mean, we have to detach from these things that don't matter that have no meaning and reconnect with the things that do, which is each other and the earth. It's just, it's that simple you know turn off the goddamn tv and go outside all right well that's a good place to leave it uh thank you so much uh (laughs) dr jessica rose uh you're You're quite uh impressive and inspiring both with your your numbers crunching uh scientific work and also uh, your inspirational rants um i hope hope i can get (laughs) you back on the show for more rants and and more uh scientific uh parsing in the future so thank you god bless and keep up the great work yeah i'd love to come back thank you okay take care bye bye